The church I go to is just a great church. It's a great church. Man, I love that church. It is so great. What do you think would be the things that they have in mind when they evaluate a church or a congregation as being great? My guess is that you would be disappointed. In fact, you probably should be disappointed to find out what they're talking about when they talk about a church that they just really love, a great church that they truly like. More than likely, they're talking about fun and games, programs for the young people, social opportunities for the for the singles and for the seniors. All sorts of recreation and entertainment or what a lot of people would say, That's, this is a great church, man. we got all that stuff going. There would probably, I'm saying probably, in most instances, there would be precious little reference to any emphasis on spiritual things. People would evaluate a church by its entertainment and recreation and programs and probably don't have much thought at all about what is being taught, the truth and application of the Scriptures, spiritual things. The fact of the matter is that men don't get to decide what makes a great church. Really, that report card comes from God himself. God gets to determine what makes a great church. And for a few minutes this morning, we want to ask that question. What makes a great church? Not by human evaluation, but by God's evaluation, what makes a great church? I hope you agree with me that that's an important thing to know. And, of course, then knowing it, to put it into application concerning this local congregation of God's people. Before we get further into the study, let me stop just a moment to thank you for being present. Uh, Add to the words of welcome that Dale already extended. We appreciate you for being here. We have a number of people visiting this morning. We want you to know that you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. We want you to come back every time you have a chance. We'd love for you to to come uh, again and again, and if if you... have questions about why we're doing the things we're doing the way we are, please ask them. We try to explain them from the Bible. We're just glad for everyone who's here today. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about what makes a great church. That should be really an important consideration to us. Again, we're saying God is the one who gets to set that standard. He's the one who gets to issue the report card, if you will, on every uh, group of people. And so we need to look to his word. We're going to use as our text a very familiar one, chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. We've studied from there many times in the past. You remember in the book of Revelation as it starts out, the the part of the book of Revelation that's easy to understand, actually, chapters 2 and 3, where the Lord addresses the seven churches in a region called Asia. We understand that Asia to be Asia Minor or the country of the general area, the country of Turkey. In, in the modern world. And so he addresses uh, individual comments to each of those seven churches, and we can certainly learn from them. What did he commend in them? What was he looking for in those churches? Well, first of all, I would suggest to you that the Lord is looking for a church that is at work, a church that does works. You know, the word works uh, is one of those kind of words almost in these days, religiously, that people act like you can't say them. There are some words in our our world that you're not supposed to say. For instance, you've heard about uh, radio disc jockeys being suspended or fired because they use certain words on the radio that you just can't say. There are just some words that you can't say. Well, works 
is that kind of word religiously these days. We're not supposed to talk about works. Works is almost like a dirty word to some people when it comes to religion. But when we look to the Word of God, surprise, we find out that He is actually looking for works. Many people want to downplay anything that could be labeled works, but the Lord is actually looking for that. In Revelation 2, wait a minute. Revelation 2, look at that reference up there. Now, I hope you recognize that's quite a bit different than what we usually have when we reference a scripture. There's actually seven verses referenced up there. And each one of the verses referenced there has the expression in it, I know thy works. Now, those of you who are familiar with Revelation 2 and 3, remember that the Lord started out his address to each of those congregations by saying, I know thy works. So the Lord was very perceptive to what they were doing. The Lord started his message to each church with that expression, and that surely means to us it's important to him that they were working in his cause. Now, why is it that this word works has gotten such a bad reputation in the religious world anyway? Since the Lord emphasized it so much, why do people today think that that's somehow not what we're supposed to be doing? I believe probably a lot of that misunderstanding comes from the text that Yancey read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice this verse says that we're not saved by works. And people want to stop right there and say, therefore, that just abolishes the whole idea of having anything to do. No works are required. Well, I think that's certainly a misunderstanding of the text and, and would put it at odds with and in contradiction to a number of other plain statements in Scripture. Actually, what Paul is talking about here is the kind of works that a man could boast of. There are no kinds of works that you can do that would earn your salvation and you'd be able to brag about, look at what I've done, I have earned my salvation. There are no such works as that. And nobody is claiming that we can earn salvation by doing works. But it's interesting that in this same passage, the, the, it goes right on to say that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's certainly work that we need to be doing, works of obedience in compliance with the conditions of his will. In Revelation, back to Revelation now. In chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord addresses the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, or I know your works. This is the New American Standard Version here. I know your deeds that your, and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. If you're reading the King James there, we're talking about works. Instead of deeds, their works or their deeds were increasing. Your deeds of late are greater than those at the first. And that was a commendable thing. Uh, what about us? What about us? Are we working and increasing in the work that we do for the Lord? Uh, it is certainly necessary how could I, as an individual member, how could you, as an individual member of the church here at College View, how could I help to make it so that the church is working and increasing in works? Is this something really that's just in the realm of the elders? The elders are supposed to take care of that, and, and I, don't, I don't even have to think about it. No, I don't believe that's the answer. Certainly the elders are responsible 
uh, for many things, and, and they're responsible for uh, much of the work that is done here. But I'm responsible too. And I can help the church to grow in works by uh, looking for something that employs specific or unique talents that I might possess, and then get busy doing them. Sign up for something. Volunteer. Get busy. And as each of us gets busier and busier in the work of the Lord, the church is busier working. Also, as we get more involved in the work of the local church, there becomes more of a sense of investment. We're working. We're invested in what the local church is doing, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing for us as individuals, and it's a good thing for the church as a whole. We need to be busy working. So, if you're looking for a great church, the Lord says one of the things that makes a church great is that it's working. Look for a church that's working, busy in His service. Another thing that makes a church great is moral purity. I'm convinced that there are some people who would say that we're just really probably overemphasizing this idea of moral purity. Talking about moral issues, just recently in our adult class we had a whole series of lessons in which we discussed current moral issues that are affecting the world and the church. And so the criticism might be, oh, we're just paying way too much attention, we're talking way too much about moral issues. Really? You think so? Considering the situation in the world today, you think that we could overemphasize moral purity and the need for Christians to maintain purity uh, in this immoral world? Uh, uh, to me, it's almost like saying, you know, when it comes to the environment, there's way too much emphasis on oxygen. I just don't, I don't think we need to be talking so much about oxygen. Oh, really? You know, I think oxygen is pretty important, and we probably ought to emphasize that a lot. We need some oxygen, right? Well, we need some teaching on moral purity as well, because God says that's what makes a church a great church. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he says, I have a few things against thee, as he addressed one of those churches, he says, I have a few things against thee, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. Now, the implication here is that the church should have done something. They should have acted to put a stop to this, to discipline that one who was influencing certain Christians to engage in sexual immorality, and they had not done so. So this church was blamed because they should have addressed that situation, put a stop to it, and they didn't. This was not what the Lord wanted. He wanted them to address that matter in which this moral impurity, this sexual immorality was being allowed in the church. Uh, a well-known parallel to that situation is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read about that church at Corinth that was allowing an immoral person to continue in their number. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1, it's common, reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed may be taken away from among you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I think especially we should emphasize this last expression. Those kind of evil influences in any church, uh, when they're not addressed and not dealt with, act as leaven. In other words, pretty soon many others become infected with the same problems. It has to be dealt with. And so, in God's estimation, part of what makes a great church is a church that's emphasizing 
moral purity. Great churches strive to be morally pure. Another thing that makes a great church is identifying and correcting false teachers. Have you been reading about all the problems with our schools? I know that you have because it's just in the news all the time. Uh, our, our public school system is in a mess. And that, I think any right-thinking person acknowledges that. You know, one of the things that's going wrong, is not the only thing that's going wrong, but one of the wrong things that's happening in our schools is that there are policies in place that prevent the identifying of ineffective teachers and, and replacing them. In other words, once these teachers have been in service for a set period of time, then they basically can't get fired. And they're doing a miserable job, but the administrators can't get rid of them. They've got tenure, and they can't be, uh, they can't be released from their assignment. Well, I want to tell you something. Things are never going to get better as long as an arrangement like that exists, wherein an ineffective teacher is allowed to continue doing an ineffective job, right? You've got to identify those bad teachers and get them out. Get somebody in there who will do the job and do it right. That just seems logical. Well, what about us in the church? Well, in the church, we've also got to identify those who are teaching false doctrine. We've got to correct that false teaching or we are in trouble. In Revelation 2, verse 2, the church at Ephesus is commended. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil and thou hast tried them that say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. Notice there were some going around saying that they were inspired apostles and that you should listen to me because I'm giving you the word of the Lord. The church at Ephesus had said, you know, we've put what you're saying to the test and we find out it's false. You're lying about that and we won't follow you. And the Lord commended Ephesus for that because they identified the false teachers that were coming their way. On the other hand, the church at Pergamos was condemned. In chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning verse 14, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Well, what's the church to do anyway? You know, so, some of these people at Pergamos say, well, what are we supposed to do? These false teachers are here. What can we do about it? They're, they're here, and we don't really want them to be here, but they're here. What are we supposed to do? Well, what you're supposed to do is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, mark them and avoid them. If you find those who are teaching false doctrine, you identify them and you correct the matter. And those churches that do that have a high rating from God. Great churches are churches that identify and correct false teaching. Another mark of a great church is perseverance. Notice what was said again to Ephesus. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. What about this word patience here in this verse? When he said that they had persevered and have patience, you think that he was suggesting that they were patient with false teachers? Maybe they were patient with those practicing immorality. Those are the couple things we've just been talking about. You know that's not the case, right? He's not commending them because they were patient with things that were wrong. Rather, he's commending them because they were patient and they persevered. These things are linked. They had persevered. They were patient in dealing with some very intense persecution. 
We know those Christians who were living back in that first century were under a very strong persecution. And in the face of that persecution and all that kind of hardship, these Christians had remained steadfast and they had been faithful and they were commended for that. We need to be that kind of people who no matter what comes our way, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do it faithfully. We're going to continue to do the right thing. In chapter 2, verse 13, in speaking to the church at Smyrna, the Lord says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. You know how bad it was back then? There were Christians that were actually being put to death for their faith. And yet the Lord expected that of them. He expected that kind of perseverance. I don't care what comes your way. Be faithful. That was the attitude that they had and the attitude that the Lord has. I really believe. Now, you, you test me on this to see if you would agree with this statement. The Lord would rather have fewer disciples who are really converted and committed to the cause than a whole lot of people who are going to give up when the pressures of the world mount against them. Would you agree that that's a true statement? The Lord would rather have fewer truly faithful Christians than a whole lot of people who are just nominal Christians. I believe that's a true statement. Look what, he, look what Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 25. There went out great multitudes with him, and he turned and said to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also... He cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it. In this last expression, the Lord was saying, please count the cost before you start. Because I want to be first. You've got to love me more than father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters. Uh, you, you have to be willing to bear your cross and come after me. Understand that before you start. Because the Lord wants disciples that are wholly committed to Him. And so we have to be the kind of people who will persevere, who will hang on, who will never give up no matter what comes our way. You know, uh, that principle has always been true. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the Hebrew writer says, Wherefore we're seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Do you know who he's talking about right here when he talks about this cloud of witnesses? He says we're compassed about with a cloud of witnesses. What is that cloud of witnesses? Well, notice this is chapter 12, verse 1. It comes right after chapter 11. What's in chapter 11 of Hebrews? That's all those great heroes of faith from the Old Testament, right? And so... He's saying all, all of God's people for all of time. Go all the way back to the beginning. Go all the way back in the Old Testament. You'll find out that the faithful people of God have been the kind of people who would run with patience the race set before them, who would persevere, who would hang in there, who would never give up, never give in, no matter what came their way. Great churches are churches that demonstrate that kind of perseverance. Great churches persevere. Great churches maintain zeal. To be a great church, it has to be a zealous church. Now stop here for a minute. I want, I want you to reanalyze the list that we've got on the board so far. Works, moral purity, 
Identifying, correcting false teachers. Perseverance. Now, you see a potential problem. I'm not counting this last one. We're talking about this last one. But count these first four things we've talked to you, do you see a potential problem there? I think there is a, a problem, a potential problem, and that is the danger of just going through the motions. We go through all the motions. We do all the right things. In other words, if someone starts teaching a false doctrine, we put a stop to that just immediately. Uh, and, and in regards to works, we're busy checking off the list, doing things just, you know, right by order and so forth. I think there's the danger of just going through the motions, even the right motions. If we're not doing that out of zeal and commitment and dedication, enthusiasm, love for the Lord, that won't work. You know the reason why we know that won't work? We know that won't work based upon what the Lord said to the church at Ephesus. We've already referenced Ephesus several times already in our lesson. And Ephesus is mentioned and commended on several counts. Ephesus is commended about several things, but notice what he says to him here beginning in verse 4. I have this against you, Ephesus. Even though you've been doing a lot of things right, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen and repent and do the first, uh, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so even a church that was doing so many things right, sort of hitting all their marks, checking off the list as they went, the Lord had a problem with them and it threatened them completely because you, he says you've abandoned the love you had at first. Their zeal, their enthusiasm, their love and devotion to the Lord was not what it had been previously. And the Lord said, you need to repent of that. And so, again, a great church is a church that maintains its zeal, love, and enthusiasm for serving the Lord. Let me stress the idea of love. A great church is a church that demonstrates love. Notice what's said to Thyatira. To the church at Thyatira, he says, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than those at first. Remember, we referenced that verse already. Right here, I want to talk about love. Who do you think he's talking about here when he says your love? You think he's talking about love for the Lord or love for fellow Christians? Which one do you think he's thinking about? I believe you could argue for both. Uh, that's both loving the Lord and loving brethren. And really, it doesn't matter because we're commanded to do both, right? Our love ought to be both for the Lord and for our brethren. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who love God, loveth God love his brother also. And so, one of the things that makes a great church is a church that's full of love. Love for God and love for one another. Both of those things are necessary, right, if we're going to be the kind of church God wants us to be. But let me ask you a question. How do you detect love? In other words, if there's love that exists between brethren, how do we measure it? How, how, how can we tell that it's there? Don't you agree that love has to be demonstrated by action? For instance, what if there was this husband who's constantly talking about how much he loves his wife. Oh, he just talks about it all the time. He just loves his wife tremendously. But in practice, 
what he does is that when he gets his paycheck on Friday, he goes out and drinks and gambles and wastes all the money. He won't support his wife. He won't, he won't even buy the basic necessities for the family. He says he loves his wife, but he does everything that prove otherwise, right? His words are denied by his actions. What about us? We can certainly give lip service to the idea of loving one another, but we've got to demonstrate it by what we do. True love is seen in action. Our love for both God and man is seen in what we do. A great church is a church that has genuine love. Finally, let me suggest to you that a great church is a church that's staying alive. This is sort of a summary of all that we have said. Um, I base that expression on what was said in chapter 3, verse 1. The, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That's a pretty sad statement, isn't it, to this church at Sardis. They had a name, but they were really dead. Every congregation that you could imagine, I mean, you name the, the church, one that you know of in, in our area or some distant place, I would argue that every congregation is in one of three categories. They're either alive, or they're dying, or they're already dead. Wouldn't you agree that'd cover them all? Now, the question is, where are we in that spectrum of things? Are we alive? Are we dying? Are we already dead? Because every church, this one included, is somewhere in that listing. How do you measure whether we're staying alive? Whether we are not like SARS? We don't want to be this way, right? We have a name that we're alive, but we're really dead. We don't want to be there. How do we measure if we're staying alive? I think you have to measure that by worship in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. You've got to measure that by how well we're training our young people to love and serve the Lord. You've got to measure that by our soundness in doctrine. You've got to measure that by our enthusiasm in work and so forth. If the Lord were to write a church I'll write a letter to the church here at College View. He's going to write a letter to us. How would he rate us alive, dying, already dead? Well, obviously, only one of those works, right? We need to be a church that's staying alive in faithful and committed service to him. What makes a great church? We said at the outset that from time to time you come across somebody and they'll tell you, oh, I just love the church that I go to. I love this church. It's a great church. And then if you begin to investigate, what do they mean by that great church? Unfortunately, in most cases, it means that they're highlighting things that the Lord doesn't want them to be doing at all. Not even authorized in his word. We can find out what makes a great church. Men don't get to write their own report card. Just like a student at school doesn't get to make up his own report card, the one in authority gets to make up the report card, right? Well, in regards to the church, we don't get to make up our own report card either. But believe me, there is a report card on us. God himself makes that, and he has his standard. We know what his standard is, and our job is to comply, work hard, to be a really great church as the Lord would have us to be. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your attention to what we've had to say. As we bring the lesson to a close, we're going to address every individual here this morning. Are you right with God? If you're not yet a Christian, we hope we can convince you to make that decision without delay. Upon hearing His truth and believing it, will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? We're ready to assist you in that obedience. Just let us know if you need more study. If you have questions that you need answered, just ask them. We'll work hard with you. 
to answer whatever questions you might have. Let us know how we can assist. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away and not been faithful in his service, come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.